This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for another installment of TFR. Today, we welcome the wonderful Christine Tsai of 500 Startups to talk diversity in venture capital. We will address questions including Christine's reaction to the Information's Future List study and their findings that 92% of senior investors at top-tier firms are male and 78% are white, her thoughts on Charlie O'Donnell's response that the study should have been focused on companies being invested in and not the investors, the overall diversity trends in VC and how the environment has changed, if the Valley is particularly difficult for underrepresented minorities, as Samil Shah mentioned in a recent interview, her personal experience as an Asian woman in VC, her advice to top-tier VCs scoring very poorly in the Futureless study, and we'll wrap up part one by discussing 500 Startups' effort with their 500 Women AngelList Syndicate. Lots of good candid discussion in this part of the interview. Here it is on diversity in venture capital. Today, Christine Tsai joins us from Mountain View, California. She's a founding partner at 500 Startups and writes at her blog, ChristineSai.co. Christine, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. So can you start us off by walking through your background and how you became involved in startup investing? Of course. So I pretty much grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and you know, specifically kind of in the Silicon Valley area and was always around technology um, pretty much my whole life. Um, my mom was and still is a software engineer at Intel. So we had computers certainly you know, in the household all the time. Um, and because of that, I think that certainly did influence my interest in technology and, you know, obviously the internet. And, um, I also went to school here. I, I went to Cal and at that time I was quite interested in doing actually like web development or web design. And unfortunately it wasn't at the best time. It was, I, you know, vividly remember one summer looking for internships, talking to a lot of different dot coms and everyone was hiring and it was all great. And then the next summer when I was looking for a full-time gig, it was just a very different story. So <laughs> um, so it was uh, not a great time to look for a job, especially in, in tech. But I ended up working at a small software company as my first job out of school for a few months. And then I, I left that after a few months to go join Google, which was one of the few companies at the time, this is around 2003, one of the few companies at the time that actually was hiring a lot. And I, I joined not in any kind of web design capacity. I joined onto a product that eventually was announced as AdSense. 
but was doing wow. kind of more like tech support. And I remember they were very, didn't really want to tell us what exactly we were working on. So for that first week, it was kind of a lot of mindless data. I actually almost wanted to quit that first week because <laughs> they just recruited a ton of people and, you know, had them doing kind of a lot of looking at sites and looking at, you know, all sorts of things, but it was pretty like kind of mundane type of work. So in, you know, they wouldn't tell us what it was for until they actually made the announcement a week later. So it was just, yeah, but I, I do remember thinking like, oh, I hate this. I want to quit, but I just <laughs> stuck with it. And and then, you know, I was at Google for about seven, a little over seven years working on a lot of different products. I, after a couple of years, I moved into kind of the product marketing role, which has fluctuated, I guess, when I was there between being under the product team and then being kind of a marketing organization. But essentially the PMM role would work very closely with the product managers or um, pretty cross-functionally. And I think it was really, you know, my time at Google and working with a lot of these small developers and small companies, I just became more interested in startups. And specifically, I was interested in what venture capital did because I I saw it as, you know, a role where you you actually got to work with these companies and help them build their product and kind of help them find their way so much. I didn't actually really I wasn't super attracted to the you know actual investment kind of finance side of it. I, I mean, I knew that that was at the end of the day kind of the role, but you know, I was just kind of intrigued by getting to work with cool founders and smart founders. And you know, I just kind of found my own way to either get connections or meet people in VC or in startups. And you know, Dave is a great example. Um, Dave McClure is my now my partner. I met him through a cold intro. I actually asked one of our companies that we were working with at YouTube at the time for an intro because I came across some slides or some videos that Dave did from PayPal on developer marketing. And I was like, oh, this guy knows a lot about developer marketing. This is like 2006 or 2007. Got a cold intro through that startup. And then, you know, we kept in touch over the years. And, um, but that was kind of how I sort of, I say forced my way in, but I just kind of like was so fascinated by all this. I just was like trying to connect with either ex-Googlers who'd left to join a VC or, people in the industry. I even, you know, I was running Google IO the last couple of years. Um, I was at Google and I took it upon myself to create a VC panel uh, that I was super <laughs> proud of, you know, among the other things that I was doing, um, trying to get the conference together. But I really was like fascinated. I want to put together a VC panel and I invited, you know, Dave and invited a bunch of other people that either was introed through these other investors or I just cold emailed. And that's honestly how I initially got into the investing side. And then I, you know, in 2010, I decided I was ready to leave. Kind of the message I'd gotten from talking to a lot of people was that VC is not something you can just go and apply for. Of course, it's very network-based. And yes. even at that time, I didn't even think about just kind of the diversity or lack of. I just, interestingly enough, it wasn't actually something I was really cognizant of until after I left. <laughs> but then, yeah, you know, Dave and I, you know, met up for coffee and you know, one thing led to another. We're talking about, you know, saying that I was seriously deciding to leave Google. And at the time, he was starting to try to raise for the first fund for 500. And a couple of weeks later, I ended up leaving Google to to join Dave and get 500 off the ground. And it's been five years since then. Wow. Yeah, we recently co-invested alongside a Google alum, Leo Polovitz. And oh, um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, and also just recently chatted with uh, Tom Tungus. So. Did you happen to be at Google uh, at the time that those guys were there? I'm actually not sure when Leo was there. I'm sure that we probably crossed over, but Tom, definitely. We actually worked on the same product, although different teams at one point, but we were working on AdSense at the same time. And then I think he joined the the product or like as a PM 
and um, we crossed over a bit, maybe worked a little bit together, but yeah, Tom is amazing. He's actually, he was actually, a, you know, an example of an, a Googler turned ex Googler turned VC that was super helpful to me as I was kind of trying to find, figure out what I was going to do. And he was always very open to conversations. And that was certainly my experience from Google. Such a refreshing and transparent guy, Tom and Leo for that matter. Yeah, but, agreed. So I take it the uh, the Go Bears on your AngelList profile is for the uh, the Cal Golden Bears and not my beloved Chicago Bears then. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, it is the, uh, the Berkeley. <laughs> well, cool. So today's topic is really diversity in VC and uh, a bit more of a general topic today, but a really important one that we probably should have addressed long ago. And it's it's a big privilege to have you on to uh, to talk through this with us. Just wanted to start out. So the information recently published the Future List study. They conducted that with Social Capital, and it was on diversity at VC firms. Uh, they found that 92% of senior investors at top firms are male and 78% are white. They also found that almost 25% have all white male managers. Christine, did you get a chance to read the study, and were you surprised by the results? Yeah, I think when the study was released, I yeah, definitely read through it. And in terms of the results, it's not too surprising. I think that is probably the state of VC in general. It was interesting to see. I was actually a little bit curious on how the methodology worked. You know, obviously, we'll, we'll put myself out there and say it was a little bit bummed out that 500 wasn't on the list, but I think the way that they had considered companies was based on maybe fund size or stage. I think they made some exceptions for, for firms or, or groups that didn't fall into that. So, you know, certainly like Y Combinator is not considered like a late stage. I mean, maybe now they are, but at the time, you know, right. they weren't. But, you know, it's, it's, it's great in general to see this being discussed more. You know, I think it's the lack of diversity, I guess, that's sort of the reality, at least at this point. Not necessarily like all doom and gloom. I think there's certainly been, you know, a lot of investors or funds that have kind of broken out in terms of that don't fit that prototypical VC that aren't male and all, you know, all male, all white. But I think we do have a ways to go. Do you think it's trending at all uh, out by you? Is the environment changing or has it changed over the past few years? I think it has definitely changed. It hasn't had exponential growth. I think the way that we expect startups to have at least 20% month over month growth or anything like that. But, <laughs> um, but it, so it, it is slowly changing. And I think, you know, the thing is also that there is sometimes a bit of a stigma around the topic in general, because you always find the, you know, the folks who vehemently disagree and say, this is not a diversity problem, it's not a gender problem, blah, 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 whatever excuse. But it is clear that the fact that this is being talked about more, the way I see it is that change is always uncomfortable. There's always for significant change to happen. It does take time and it's not like a fun, all happy sunshine process where people are very motivated. There's always going to be someone either who who doubts it or feels like resistant to doing it. So, I mean, I'm sure this has happened with many not even specific to kind of our little bubble of startups in VC. If you think about even throughout history, when changes happen, it's been very painful. <laughs> um, you know, I'm sure we don't see people dying because VCs are all white male, but I think people sometimes take the opposite approach of avoiding the topic or kind of feeling like, oh, well, I can't say anything because someone will jump down my throat because I'm a white male VC. And, but, you know, I mean, I think that type of stuff will happen for change to happen. I'm still optimistic, even though the change is probably slow, but 
you know, especially with 500, we want to do what we can to at least invest in what we believe in and have our own thesis of what we believe in. Hopefully that has some impact as well. So, Christine, after the study came out, of course, Charlie O'Donnell wrote his response that he was disappointed in the data. And it was because he thought the data was excluding the most important statistic of all, the results. Uh, Mm -hmm. So who is actually building a portfolio whose founders reflect the diversity of the greater population? Uh, That was Mm -hmm. sort of Charlie's question. What are your thoughts on his position that the study should be focused on who's funded instead of who's doing the funding? I think that's a very good point. And I think kind of the the downside of lumping all white male VCs into one group, you know, sometimes it's not fair because there are arguably many investors who fall into that gender race identification that are actually very, very diverse in terms of how they look at VC, in terms of the actual you know, the numbers of companies they funded and whatnot. So so I do think that's fair, but I don't think that it should be completely focused on that. I really still think that who's on the other side of the table who actually has the the quote-unquote power in terms of giving capital to these founders, it still makes a huge difference. I mean, Charlie is one great, you know, he, he could be just one great example, but looking at kind of the broader state of VC and who gets funded, it's clear, I don't think it's coincidence, you know? So I think it does right. make a big difference when... You have the diversity on both sides. Right, sure. Yeah, we recently had Samil Shah on the program, and we were discussing mm-hmm. the availability of capital at the seed stage versus A. Yeah. While he said it's fairly easy to raise at the seed round, he mentioned that it's still much more difficult for what he called URMs, underrepresented minorities. I recall his comments about how there's no welcome wagon in the valley and yeah. how this especially affects URMs. Um, have you witnessed a climate that makes it especially difficult for underrepresented minorities? Yeah, I mean, I of course, I can't speak to it directly in terms of, I guess, when, when you say underrepresented minorities, commonly that refers to specifically like African-American or Latino, although you, you know, could potentially extend that to other races. I'll just use those two specifically. I think just anecdotally from a lot of uh, African-American founders I've spoken with, they certainly say that it's 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 not so blatant or obvious, but it is, is clear when, say, they're going to pitch businesses or when they walk into a meetup or something, when they just don't see anyone who identifies with them and kind of gets it. Um, it does make a huge difference. No matter how friendly people can be, it's like at the end of the day, are these companies getting funded? You know, say, for example, it's an African-American founder and they're building a business that the target customer is also African-American. I've talked to several founders who've been doing these types of businesses and they say they, you know, they, they pitch this say up and down, you know, Silicon Valley and they get kind of confused looks or they generally get investors who don't understand the market. And as a result, they feel hesitant to invest. And that's a problem because even if it's a market you don't understand personally and you don't have firsthand experience with it, either as a consumer or an investor, it certainly doesn't mean that it's not still a huge market, but what happens is a lot of investors who aren't familiar with it, they kind of, there's a switch that thinks like, oh, well, I don't get this. I don't see how it could actually really be a huge market because I've never had any kind of interaction with it, which is a problem. Again, you know, there's certainly investors who will still invest in these, you know, markets that they don't necessarily have firsthand knowledge with. So like for us, you know, one example is we invested in a company called Maven, which, you know, African-American co-founder and CEO and they're targeting largely African American market demographic. Deshaun, right? Deshaun, yes. Yeah. So, I've seen him you speak. Know, 
Yeah, he's great. And at least at this point, they're, the company's great. And I think there's probably less question about whether it's a, a strong business because they have the traction and now the funding to show that this is a huge business. But, you know, at the time when it's early, you know, kind of what you're saying where, where Semmel says it's at the seed stage, it's, you know, these companies are still early, even if they have kind of impressive traction. And so if there's any, I think if there's any kind of quote unquote doubt for investors, whether they, you know, realize it or not, it's, it can be tough for people who just don't look like the typical founder or, you know, it doesn't even necessarily have to be underrepresented minorities. It could certainly be, uh, say you're a pregnant woman walking into a pitch, you know, they just kind sure. of zone in on your belly or you look older. Um, you're not kind of the young spry looking founder. You have gray hair and, you know, there could be questions. And I think it's just general, all these kind of doubts come up and it comes off as, oh, well, you know, you don't seem like that dedicated to the business or you don't have that kind of gravitas. It may come out as that or it may just come out as, oh, I just don't think this is a big market. I doubt anyone will actually say, I don't think that I would want to invest in an you know, African-American founder. I think that would be <laughs> right. like you know an outrage, but it could just be that they've never invested in a founder who is you know, a person of color. And for some reason for an investor, maybe that's a question mark or they don't understand, say, you know, a Latino customer base or whatnot. So, right. So in that sense, certainly if you you know look at where the money is going to, as well as who's starting businesses, there's there's obviously a, a big disconnect. And I think sometimes investors also make the poor argument saying, oh, well, there aren't that many founders of underrepresented minorities who are founding businesses. And one, I don't think they're looking hard enough. And two, I think they just need to get out of the building because they're not necessarily <laughs> always going to be in Silicon Valley. I mean, if you look around Silicon Valley, it's... I saw this article that was talking about how San Francisco is actually becoming more white. I wasn't <laughs> sure if that was a real article or if it was like the onion. But, you know, generally, I think it's it's pretty clear it's not quite as diverse as other metros in the U.S. I was just in Miami a couple weeks ago, and I was floored at just how, I think I knew it from hearing it from our team, but just actually being there. Like, it's, I think like 60, 70% of the population is just Spanish speaking. And I just didn't realize just how huge the you know, Hispanic community is there. and But it's clearly it's significant, I mean, in terms of building businesses that address problems for these markets. Certainly, you could have a white male founder who would think of a solution for this market, but it seems natural that it's someone who is, say, Latino, who would build a business for a Latino market. And and then if they go to pitch, say, white male VCs, it kind of, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> there's a little bit of a disconnect. So White guys yeah. funding white guys, right? Yeah. And yeah, you know, I, I feel sometimes that's, it's not always fair to, to all investors who are like that, like I said before, but it's, I mean, just if you look at founders who are, say, under, underrepresented or targeting underrepresented customer segments, it, it is certainly challenging. Right. Would you be willing to talk about your personal experience as a diverse woman entering a white male dominated industry? You know, I have to say, I've actually, I've felt pretty lucky because of, I think, the way that we've built 500. And I think there've been certainly heard a lot of criticism of 500 in general. So maybe it's just our team in terms of like the early days and even now, but so me personally, like I mentioned earlier that I didn't really think about kind of the diversity or things like that. When I was at Google, like there would be women's groups and those types of initiatives. And I, for some reason, I think I always avoided them because I felt like, Oh, I don't want to be in something that's just women specific or whatnot. But I don't know. It's interesting. Like, I'm not sure what made me kind of more aware of the topic while I was at 500. It could have been because that's a big part of our values or maybe I experienced things more. 
And it's also interesting to say this as a woman, but who's Asian American, because there's sometimes a lot of jokes like, oh, Asians are not a minority in Silicon Valley <laughs> or in BC, <laughs> yeah. which I don't totally agree with, but that's a kind of a different topic. But but generally, I, again, I, I, I think I've been pretty lucky. I don't know if I would have had the same experience at another firm. Helping to actually build 500 with Dave made a big difference. And you know, he himself is also, he is white male, I guess, but I think <laughs> right. he feels like he didn't always fit in because he jokes about how he calls himself the hillbilly VC, but you know, he didn't come from kind of that, that you know, silver spoon pedigreed background. And he's someone that worked really, really hard to get to where he is. And he's always really embraced people of all colors and backgrounds. And that's just been a very big value for him and for, for me too. And I think that's what we've really wanted 500 to be about in terms of who's on our team, who we're investing in. So, you know, in my time with 500 and, and building the company, I've had two kids as well. So I've had the experience of being wow. pregnant and having been out for a little bit and, and raising kids. And, you know, that's also another many challenges there. But, you know, I think a lot of things that maybe have been challenging are probably minor problems in the grand scheme of things, like people kind of assuming that I couldn't be anything but potentially say kind of like a secretary to Dave. Like, you know, sometimes I would get people saying, oh, can you tell me what's on Dave's calendar? And I would say, I don't know. Wow. I don't know. Really? Yeah, I don't know his calendar. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I would certainly get irritated by it, but I think about it and like, you know, on the one hand, it's probably they, you know, it's, it's, it's on me to try to get more visibility for myself. The other thing is, you know, sometimes it's the assumption that you know, someone who's in kind of an administrative role is female and they see Dave and Christine, they think, oh, okay, maybe she's like his support or chief of staff or something. And, huh. you know, that's not great either. So, <laughs> but again, I think it's, you know, certainly when that happens, it's an annoyance, but for anyone who experiences that shouldn't be something that you try to let it get you down. Can't even imagine. I'm sure you have to deal with a bunch of this BS all the time. Yeah. It's interesting though, because I think that there are, you know, for the junior, say men on the team, I'm fairly certain they don't get asked about scheduling things for someone's calendar. But <laughs> but in any case, you know, it is kind of what it is. But I, I've tried to look at it from the perspective of, okay, I need to build a stronger brand for myself. You know, in that respect, Dave and I are very opposite. Everyone knows who Dave is. He's out, out there all the time, right. loves, you know, like media, and he's just really good at it. It's just not for me, not, you know, I'm probably like the polar opposite. So it's just been kind of like my own personal challenge to myself to try to get out there more, you know, certainly for any, anyone, whether they're male or female, I think if you're in BC, I think it's actually very critical to build that personal brand because ultimately it's, it's great for deal flow. It's great for representing your own fund, et cetera. Yeah. Well, we certainly appreciate you making the time for us, but this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex Corporate Card for Startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal -deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. 
So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. Circling back to the study from the information, it's a real shame that 500 wasn't included because the stats I've seen on you guys, not only internally, but externally, the the portfolio companies that you uh, invest in and welcome into the accelerator are, are quite diverse. But Christine, there were a number of great VC firms that scored very low. Uh, I don't, I don't want to name names here, but generally, what message do you have for them? I mean, you can always say, yeah, you need more diversity. You need to hire a woman partner. You need to hire a, a partner that's of, of an underrepresented minority. But I don't know if that's necessarily as powerful as saying, if you have a more diverse team and portfolio, you actually will perform better. And maybe they have data that says otherwise. Maybe they, they think, well, you know what? We've funded mostly white male founders and our IRR is awesome. But I do think that if they really want to you know, make more money, in, in our view, you should be looking at markets that are, you know, they're huge markets, but they're not necessarily ones that are either over, you know, getting funded a lot. It's actually, you know, in some sense, it's to their advantage to be wanting to invest in markets that aren't, like Maven's a great example. Like we have very high hopes for them. Um, They're not targeting kind of the typical audience that most VCs would look at. We certainly have great companies who are outside of the U.S. that are in Southeast Asia or in Latin America, and they're doing great. And you know, I think the general pushback from a lot of VCs is they don't want to invest in markets they aren't familiar with because they don't feel like they can add value. But I do think that they should try to challenge themselves and try to either get into these markets or think about a strategy to do so, whether it's like getting out of the building and going to those markets or hiring more diverse staff. That said, I kind of wonder about hiring a more diverse staff because I think sometimes when I hear VCs talk about it, it sounds like they're just saying, oh, Look, we hired a you know female partner. Yay! It's if, as if they kind of like look. Right, I bought a right. new car, or I, I have a new trophy. But it's not. It's just sort of a poster on the wall versus what is that partnership really about? What are their values? So I think it's it is challenging. And actually, one of our partners on the investment team, Andrea Barica, she wrote a great post about this called like how much diversity does your startup have? And saying like you know as you grow, it, it gets harder and harder to solve that quote unquote like diversity problem because if you aren't already set up for that, or if you don't already have networks of diversity, it just, it makes it a lot harder the more your team grows. So it's just, it's, it's interesting to think about how that affects VCs that are usually very small partnerships. So they're naturally going to want to hire people that they know and their networks probably are of, maybe don't include a lot of people of color or women or whatnot. So yeah, just going back to your main question was just, you know, you could be performing maybe even better if you had a more diverse outlook. So. <laughs> So, Christine, Jennifer Fonsted and Teresa Gao of Aspect Ventures have an initiative focused on building a collaborative network of female entrepreneurs, angel investors, and venture capitalists. Uh, Do you see an emerging trend of networks and communities being created 
to help change the lack of diversity we see in venture? Definitely. I've seen that and I think it's actually great. I know there's always people who feel like they, that having say, you know, a female network or, you know, kind of a network just for a particular group of people is, is worse and it should be mixed. But I think things like Jennifer and Tracy are doing, or a lot of groups are, they're either building a network of female entrepreneurs or, you know, whether it's women only or not, or if it's of a certain ethnic group or not. I think those are great in terms of trying to bring more visibility of say, hey, you know, there are a lot of angel investors that are also women and this is a great way to connect with them. Or, um, you know, another you know, example of an organization is Black Founders, which is run by Monique um, Woodard and, and a few other folks. I just happen to know Monique from the group, but, but you, you know, they're dedicated to providing a network for African-American entrepreneurs and founders or, or, or people who are just kind of interested in startups. And I think that will hopefully continue to grow, especially in areas where, you know, outside of Silicon Valley. And in terms of like, if these kind of growing communities or networks, like, does that help change diversity? Um, I mean, I think for some of them, the groups are newer. And personally, I don't have any data that the more of these types of groups there are, it actually has in the long run, does that change the lack of diversity? Um, so no hard data, but I can say like for us personally, for 500, a lot of these groups have been a great source of deal flow in terms of finding great teams and, you know, great founders. So I think, you know, for us, like we've definitely looked to a lot of these groups in terms of being kind of an informal partner, having good relationships with them so that we can seek out founders who are building great businesses and they happen to be underrepresented or they're um, on top of that, they are targeting underrepresented minorities in terms of a customer segment. So, so I don't know how other investors are approaching these groups or if they actively get referrals from them or whatnot, but um, depending on the group, it's, it's great to tap into them and have relationships with them. That'll wrap up part one of the interview. If you enjoyed this segment, please share your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And if you don't use social media, it would be great if you'd tell a friend about the program. And look out for part two of the interview that will be released here this week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next time.